You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining me for tonight's live stream. Happy Monday, wherever you are. And I am incredibly excited to bring you this very special interview tonight with my friend, uh, former coworker, mentor, Kenneth Samples. I am just so delighted to be able to talk to him tonight about his decades of experience working in the field of theology and defending the faith and talking to people from all different religious perspectives over the years and kind of gleaning some of his wisdom of how do we do this? Uh, I think it's going to be a really good conversation and give you a little bit of insight or background into um, why I'm the kind of theologian that I am. Uh, Certainly all the flaws belong to me, not to Ken, but Uh, Ken has been so hugely influential in my life and shaped how I do theology. So super excited to talk to him. And don't fear if I haven't forgotten about part four of my series on justice. It's written. It's ready to go. It's just been a crazy busy month in September with traveling and speaking. But a week from tonight will be part four of my series on justice. So be sure to come back next week for that. Now, before I bring Ken on, we're going to have a little short story time (laughs) because I get the honor of interviewing a lot of amazing people. How is this my life? I got to interview Nancy Piercy just a couple of days ago. I, I don't even know. I'm living the dream. This is pretty amazing. But the person I am going to interview today has had some of the most important impact on my life, probably after my grandfather and my husband. If you've listened to my content for any length of time, you already know how much I admire my grandfather and my husband. But the man I'm going to talk to today is right up there in, you know, the top men in my life. And um, now I was remembering back and Bob, can you can correct me. Um, I think we met Ken Samples back in about 1993 Uh, We had been married for literally about five minutes because I have a very distinct memory of sitting in our living room in our tiny little guest house in La Mirada, California, unpacking our wedding gifts and listening to the local Christian radio station. An ad came on the radio um, talking about a Sunday school class that met in a church in Orange County where you could ask questions about the faith. And I just remember thinking like, we should go to that. And I, I probably talked Bob into, to, let's, let's go check this out. Let's see what this is. So the next Sunday, Bob and I drove down to Costa Mesa and attended a class taught by a man that we didn't know. His name was Ken Samples. He had just recently taken over the class, like within a few weeks of us coming there. And one thing that really made an impression on both Bob and I right away was that Ken had this big wooden box in the front of the classroom where you could put a question about theology each week. And for the first 20 minutes or so of class, he would pull out the questions and he would answer them. And I remember he would he would unfold them and he would put them on the lectern and he would read them carefully and then he would answer them carefully 
And this was so amazing to me. I don't know why. I guess it was before the days of the inter- internet where you could just go look things up. It, it hadn't really occurred to me to ask that many questions about my faith, even though Bob and I had both grown up in the church. This was really kind of our first introduction to having the ability to ask questions about our faith. And that class led Bob and I into a growing season together Um, as a young married couple. It was so foundational to so much that happened later to us where we learned theology and apologetics. We got solidified and grounded in our faith. Just was a very um, wonderful season, a very sweet season early in our marriage. And I remember that one of the lecture series that Ken taught very early on, all the way back then, it was the foundation for what eventually became his book, Without a Doubt. And uh, Without a Doubt is definitely a book that's in my top three books that I think every Christian would benefit from reading. And it came out several years ago now, but still incredibly relevant of the top 20 questions that Ken often would encounter as an instructor at um, community colleges and in his dialogues with people from a variety of religious perspectives, putting those answers all together in a book. It's just a wonderful crash course on our faith. And what an absolute honor it is to talk to Ken Samples tonight about his life, legacy, and working for almost four decades in apologetics. Welcome, Ken. It's good to see you. I miss you. <laughs> I miss you too. Our our offices used to be kind of right adjacent to each other. Yes. And I could run down there and have a conversation with you. But it's it's great to see you. Well, I'm excited for your new uh, your new ministry venture, and uh, it's wonderful to be with you. Thank you so much for having me on tonight. Yeah, it's great to see you. You know, I think for those who might not be familiar with your work, maybe a great place to start is tell us about where you currently work and and the kinds of topics that you often write about there, because I think that will be very fascinating to people. Yeah, I have. uh, I've been working here at Reasons to Believe. This is I'm working on my 25th year. Uh, I think about 20 or 21 of those I worked with you here. Yep. Um, Reasons to Believe, of course, is a, a an apologetic organization that focuses on science, faith issues. So many years ago, I met Hugh Ross, and uh, we developed a friendship, and he asked me to come to work for him. I am on the scholar team. I am not a scientist. My background is in philosophy and theology. So I've written uh, about how Christianity interfaces uh, on a worldview level with with science. And so um, I kind of look at the philosophical and theological issues that are relevant to the discussion of Christianity's relationship to science. And so I've been very fortunate. I've been able to write a number of books. Uh, Writing is very challenging, but it's also very fulfilling, especially when uh, you discover that your books are helpful to people. So, and here's uh, a little sampling of, of just some yeah. of the books that that you that you've written. Uh, it it really you are really quite prolific. Um, I'm wondering what drives you to write. That's that's I, I'm glad you asked that. Um, 
you know, for me, writing is is not easy, um, but I feel compelled to write. And usually when I write a book, I've kind of carried it in my head, in my mind for at least a decade or more. And uh, you mentioned without a doubt, uh, that's exactly how I came to write that book. Uh, for a couple decades, I had people asking me these these were non-Christian people, either in my class or uh, through various means, would ask me, and I just kept I kept a list of them, and I would talk about them in my class. And uh, fortunately, I was able to uh, get them into book form. So, uh, yeah, RTB has been uh, a place I've been working for a, a, almost a quarter of a century. It really is remarkable. Um... In the longevity that you and I both experienced there, and you were largely responsible for bringing me there and introducing me to the Rosses. And, and you know, Ken knew me when I was very, very young. We met when I was only 23. And, you know, I was just such a punk, but he saw potential in me. And he was so encouraging of me. I was just starting out in seminary. I think I was in my first or second semester and Ken was so encouraging to me to keep going even when it was hard even when I felt like there were no other women in my program what am I doing here this is a silly waste of time am I ever going to be anything Ken just was a big voice in my life Ken and my husband just kept telling me keep going the Lord has a plan and, you know, you were just so encouraging to me at a, at a time when I when I really needed it. And I just had no idea where I was going or what this was going to be. So, you know, you know, Chris, I have to say that uh, I, I think discouragement can be a big challenge for people. And, uh, you know, you, you have to keep enduring. I could see in you even in those years, you had a, a passion, your love for the Bible and you have become, I think, one of the very best Bible teachers uh, that I have ever encountered. And so I know your followers know your ability in that area. Oh, it's very kind. Um, I'd love to kind of go back to the beginning a little bit and hear a little of your story of how you got interested in, in theology and, and defending the faith and that sort of a thing. Were you always interested in thinking about more deeper topics, even as a child, or was that something that kind of developed for you later in your life? Well, I was, uh, I was baptized as a Catholic. My parents converted to Catholicism when I was, a f when I was four years old. So I was baptized as a, as a young child. And, uh, I was, I was always kind of searching. I mean, my Catholicism was there, but I, I wasn't totally, sold out to Christianity, but I was searching. I remember my baseball coach nickname, his nickname for me was Professor. And, uh, you know, he would always, he, he, he recognized that I was asking a, a lot of questions about uh, the meaning of life. So in my first, second year of college, uh, my sister gave me a book by C.S. Lewis entitled Mere Christianity. And that had a big influence on me. Um, I also began attending church uh, in the Catholic Church. You can go to Mass every day. I would go to Mass 7 in the morning until about 7.45, and then I'd go on to school or, or to work. And I think almost immediately when I made a serious uh, connection with Christ, 
uh, I began talking with students and professors who were interested in philosophy, had lots of philosophical questions. And I had a lot of dialogue with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. I remember one time I was playing basketball with a guy at a park in Lakewood, uh, just a suburb of Los Angeles. Um, and afterwards, we, we you know, were drinking some Gatorade, talking uh, about theology. And he, he you know, shared with me that he was a witness and he challenged my view of the Trinity, my view of hell. And uh, I was still kind of trying to get my basic understanding of the Bible and my understanding of Christian doctrine. But he really pushed me around. And I remember, I remember distinctly driving home and praying and saying, Lord, I'm not going to let that happen again. Um, mm. For now on, I'm going to be ready. Uh, I, I'm going to know what I believe, and I'm going to be able to share it with them. So that was, uh, boy, uh, 19, 20, 21 years old. Wow. Now, I haven't heard that story before. You know, you mentioned your parents um, briefly, and I know they played a critical role in shaping your life. I know you're very proud of your parents. That's something I learned from you um, and how much you value your parents, Um both your mother and your father had unique roles in your life. I I know you're a very private person, so I don't I don't want to pry, but I would love it if you could share just a little bit about your parents or one or two things that they taught you about your life and, and the faith. Yeah, you know, one thing that really stood out, Krista, is uh, when I was in eighth grade, I, I always knew that my dad was uh, in World War II. He was... Uh, Grew up, my mom and dad grew up in West Virginia. My dad was a coal miner, and then he was drafted into the Second World War. And, uh, but my dad was rather quiet about his, uh, his war experiences. I think that it, it was a difficult time of his life. But I remember I was in eighth grade, and uh, we had to write a report on World War II. So I came home and asked my dad, Dad, could we go to a bookstore and maybe get a couple reference books that I could use? So we went out and bought them. And when we got home, we were looking through the books. And one of them was entitled um, The Decline and Fall of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan by Hans Dollinger. And uh, while my dad and I were looking through it, my dad was in the book. There were two pictures of him in the book. And uh, boy, my lights, you know, the lights in my mind just went on all around me. I just, I just fell in love with history. I fell in love with ideas. And, and you know, my dad seemed so ordinary, but here he was. And, you know, the, the, the photos were kind of grainy. They were from a distance. But I could clearly see that that was my dad. And my dad had been involved in this, this incredible conflict that later I would discover 75 million people died in the war. So, you know, my dad, his courage, um, his work ethic were, were just really, really things that uh, moved me deeply. And with my now, mother. Now, your dad, your dad was a mechanic, right? In, that's right. In, in the war? After, after the war. After the war, uh, okay. He, the, the mines closed in West Virginia and they moved to uh, they moved to Los Angeles, an amazing thing to go from Clay County, West Virginia to Los Angeles. My dad was kind of a mixture, Mr. Fix-It kind of fellow. 
he would repair automobiles. And, uh, you know, with my mother, my mother was kind of the historian of the family. She was the reader in the family. And uh, I have this distinct memory of her. I was in third grade and uh, I came home from school and uh, I remember my mother, she was ironing clothes, had one of those old ironing board where you pull out the legs and she was ironing. And at the same time, she was reading uh, this book about uh, President John F. Kennedy. And it, I'll never forget that, that my my mother was, she was a reader and she was also a very nurturing mother. Um, I used to I used to say that my mother knew I was sick before I did, um, and she she nurtured me. You know, and as I've thought about it, Krista, I've thought um, I I was born kind of like an accident. My mother was thirty seven when I was born. My dad was forty. They had already had five kids, but you know, my mother uh, she always treated me with with such love and with such care. And uh, boy, you know, when I think about issues like the the pro-life movement, I wish everybody could have a mother like I had who just cared for me. And uh, those are, those are things about my parents. I'll never forget. I, scripture says to honor your father and mother. And I've, I've tried to do that in my life. Now your parents were very, simple people they weren't they didn't have phds or anything but they kind of i think from what i've heard you say they were very real people they were caring for you they were regular people but they they taught you so much about you know their their the legacy that they gave you um both in your faith and in in your desire to be a lifelong learner i think that's a wonderful legacy that, that you bring forward from both of your parents um, from West Virginia, you know, a, a low socioeconomic situation there. Your father was a minor. Um, it's just a wonderful legacy of that you that you that you preserve for, of your parents. Well, th- that's exactly right. They, you know, dropped out of school. They lived during the Great Depression. They had to drop out of the school out of school to to work on the farm. And uh, yet they had very bright minds. They loved ideas. I remember my dad would quiz me about political issues at the dinner table. And uh, I had some really smart sisters, so I had to really be on my game. Uh, But my parents, they were hard workers. I've never met anyone more patriotic. I mean, they just exhibited great joy on election day. They were so proud to vote. Um, and I, I learned so much from them. I, you know, I've dedicated a couple books to them because uh, they've had such a, such a deep influence and enduring influence on me. Now, before you came to work at Reasons to Believe, you worked with another pioneering Christian apologist, Walter Martin. And I'm wondering if maybe we can get into that part of your story, because as you mentioned earlier, as you had interactions with people, some questions kind of set you back on your heels a little bit. Um, I'm wondering if that experience and that desire to know what you believe and to be able to articulate it, if that played some role in your interactions with Walter Martin. 
Oh, yeah. I, I remember uh, hearing about Walter Martin. A friend of mine said, you've got to hear this guy. He's called the Bible Answer Man. And during that time, Walter had a Saturday night program. And uh, I listened to it, and I discovered that he had a class uh, in Southern California. Um, and I went to his class, and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that there was somebody who had such a mastery of the Bible, was able to interact the Christian faith with the beliefs of other particular uh, philosophical systems and religions. Uh, Walter was a very bold, very articulate, um, and he had a huge impact on me. Um, you know, again, the idea of talking with people who are in other religions, not, not just not just Jehovah's Witnesses who would knock on my door, but talking to people in, in other world religions. And um, I had the great honor to, a few years after meeting him, to go to work for him. And, um, you know, it was, it was amazing. He, he, um, I worked with him on the topics of Roman Catholicism, on Seventh-day Adventism, and Interestingly enough, those are the two backgrounds of my family. My, my parents were not Seventh-day Adventists, but they were Christian Adventists. They, were, uh, they worshiped on Sunday, but they had a lot of the distinctive features of Adventism. And then, of course, my parents converted to Catholicism. So I was thinking through all of that. You know, what do we believe? But Walter was, uh, he was an amazing individual. I, I'm not sure I've ever seen anybody who was as courageous, who would stand up and, um, yeah, he, he really was the Bible answer man. I mean, I, when people, I, I hosted the show uh, for a period of time when I was at the Christian Research Institute, but when people call me the Bible answer man, I think, I don't know about that, but Walter... He really was the original Bible answer man. Well, I would I have to disclose I've been binge watching Walter Martin videos <laughs> on YouTube in preparation for this this interview and he really did have a very unique way, a very direct way of defending the faith. Yeah. Um and I know from our time at working at Reasons to Believe like you just pick things up from the people that you work with and I'm wondering, you know, what did you learn from him? Uh, like, what is it that you t have taken with you from that season of your life that from working with Walter Martin? You know, you know, one thing that really uh, influenced me, Krista, was, you know, Walter was kind of the Mr. Uh, Countercult apologist. I mean, his book, The Kingdom of the Cults, was really kind of the standard book in the field. And you know, he had gone to um, Utah and debated Mormons. He had gone to the Watchtower when it was in Brooklyn, New York, and he would witness to the witnesses, which I always thought was just just funny and remarkable. But, you know, I, I think one thing that he really influenced me, Krista, was while Walter was a person that studied cults and heresies, Walter was very careful about what he said about other groups, and Walter didn't consider the Roman Catholic Church a cult, and he didn't consider the Seventh-day Adventist Church a cult. Now, that's not to say he didn't have differences, and, and uh, he debated 
uh, a, a Catholic priest that I came to know very well, Father Pacqua. He debated numerous Adventists. But I, I think the thing that I really appreciated is that Walter was not a heresy hunter. When he saw something that was genuinely Christian, um, he, he appreciated it and he recognized that. And so that has had a, a long influence on me. I, um, I certainly want to defend the faith, but I also recognize that, uh, you know, Christian apologists can kind of come off as, uh, I, I don't know, less than charitable. Mm-hmm. But here, here was Walter Martin, a brilliant man, uh, Mr. Countercult apologist. But I thought the distinguishing features for me was he was very generous to, to uh, systems of theology that he thought really were Christian. I, that's so good because that's something I've really learned from you, I guess, is, you know, when I do my streams and I'm, I'm researching a topic and I'm presenting it. The feedback I often get is either, you know, I really appreciate how fair and well-documented it is, even if you disagree, or people are concerned that I'm almost too charitable, you know? And I'm like, well, you know, I I think I would want to err on the side of being too charitable because I'm pretty sure this is a Christian brother. I do think there's some confusion here over Orthodox doctrine but I don't want to be so quick to to throw this person away or to demonize him. But living in the age of YouTube, yeah. the, the I mean, you can amass a much bigger following. I would have a hundred thousand followers if I would make call out videos, you know, yeah, and right. calling people out as heretical. But I think that I learned that value from you of trying to be careful well-documented and, and, and that kind of a thing. So that's interesting to me that that's something that you learned from, from Walter. Yeah. I remember right after Walter passed away, which was a a shock uh, to me and uh, CRI went through a transition from Walter to Hank Hanegraaff. And um, I remember after, after I left, uh, CRI and began teaching uh, the Newport Mesa class that you and you and your husband attended. I, I remember thinking to myself, well, maybe I'll be the next Walter Martin, you know, and I'll be bold just like he was. And I, I remember one day a lady asked me a question, and I, I guess my, I guess my question was maybe a little too nuanced. Maybe it was kind of uh, weak or. Uh, uh, wimpy, but she came up to me afterwards and she said, you're no Walter Martin. Oh, and, uh, at first I kind of stung, but you know, the the more I thought about it, the more I thought she's right. I can't, I don't have Walter's skill set. I don't have his personality. I have to be myself. And, you know, that kind of, that kind of freed me to say, Hey, I I want to contend for the truth, but I I care a great deal about the unity in the body of Christ. Um, I also want uh, to promote uh, unity among all Christians, and I want to be charitable and gracious. And so I learned a lot from Walter, but I also learned that I had to uh, follow the path and be the person the Lord intended me to be. Yeah. So when you were working at CRI, 
you specialized in Adventism, Roman Catholicism, but I also know you've researched some fairly unusual things in your career. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the things that you've that you've researched over the years that you're like, this is not what your everyday theologian ends up looking into. Yeah, I had one person say to me, he goes, you've, you've written about weird things. Um, well, I, in uh, the late in the early 1990s, uh, this was after Walter had died, um, I went to a little city in the then country of, of Yugoslavia called Medjugorje, where about a handful of young people said they were seeing uh, visions of the Virgin Mary. And I had developed a friendship with uh, a Catholic scholar and priest, Father Mitchell Pacwa. And uh, Mitch and I had debated and gone back and forth about the Catholic view of Mary. Um, I shared with him some of my concerns and criticisms. And Mitch said, well, why don't you come to Medjugorje and, you know, investigate what was going on? So I did. Um, I was actually invited by the priest at the time at St. James Parish uh, to attend when one of the, they called them seers, when one of the young women uh, named Maria had a vision. And uh, later, along with my colleague at CRI, Elliot Miller, we wrote a book about uh, Mary uh, entitled The Cult of the Virgin. Uh, Eliot looked at the Catholic view of Mary, and I wrote about the apparitions. But also, not long after that, I was part of a book with three other CRI scholars on uh, David Koresh and the Branch Divinians. It's called Prophets of the Apocalypse. It's uh, at, That book is out of print. Cult of the Virgin is also out of the print, but Amazon amazingly has copies. But we did an investigative kind of analysis of David Koresh, and oh boy, uh, a year or so ago, I did a, a major interview on a television program, uh, and they interviewed me about Koresh and what happened. I think it was like the 25th anniversary or something. Maybe it was the 30th anniversary. But I've also been, uh, after coming to Reasons to Believe, I worked with Hugh Ross and Mark Clark uh, two very fine Christian thinkers and scholars, and we had we have a book entitled um, "Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men," where we talked about UFOs. So uh, I guess I have written about strange and unusual things. You also co-authored a book on uh, transhumanism yep. uh, with Dr. Fuzrana. I mean, you just which I don't know. I really the reason I'm bringing this up is because. I don't know if people have an appreciation of how unusual that is. It's very common in academia for people to like, just have this very narrow lane. Like I only know this, but for somebody like Ken, you're, you're such a diverse theologian and you're, you're able to bring theology and scripture to bear on a wide variety of issues and engage in interdisciplinary things. I mean, when you're looking at, contactee experiences and what that's like. You've got to integrate science into that, theology yeah. into that, some demonology into that. Like there's a oh. lot that some psychology, trauma ideas. That is is very unusual. And it's just 
really shows the depth of your of your skill set. I think the because um, you and I have had to be the type of theologians that are very nimble. <laughs> We've yeah. got to be able to comment on a wide variety of things, but that's not always very common. Well, I, I do think, you know, as we think about apologetics, and I know you have people who follow you who are at various stages in their education and their preparation for evangelism and the study of theology, philosophy. Um, you, you know, all whenever you're an apologist, you're you're probably going to be somebody who has to go outside of their field. Um, you know, my background is in theology and philosophy, but there are times where I'm asked to weigh in on something that relates to science or relates to psychology or literature. And I, I do think that uh, having, a, having a very uh, strong focus on essential Christianity, upon uh, you know, the essentials of the faith help a great deal. And I think meeting and talking with people who are specialists in those fields and uh, trying to learn as much from them as I, I can. Um, it, and so it's not easy. Sometimes you feel like, wow, should I be addressing something like that? But, um, you know, these issues aren't going to go away and we need to address them. Yeah, I can really relate to that. I mean, this whole venture that I've gone into in the last two years into justice and race issues, yeah. <laughs> there was no class in seminary that prepared me for that. It just wasn't the lane that I was in. Right. And yet having to do that interdisciplinary work, it's like, well, you know, should I be doing this? I'm just sort of the accidental theologian in wading into these waters. And it can be very intimidating at times. And um, yet, like you said, people that follow us are in all, in all different places in their journey, and they're really wanting somebody to explain things in a, in a way that they can understand and then go for, for deeper engagement. But it right. sometimes that's a little uh, nerve-wracking on people like you and I when we're trying to get up to speed on something, talking to experts, trying to figure out how does this all fit in with the Christian worldview and, and all of that. Um, we're going to go out and do a couple of uh, comments here on the chat. People are coming. Questions are coming in. Um, Chris does a punk. Yeah, I was, I was a very arrogant punk in my 20s. Yeah. Oh, boy, that was a mess. Um, okay. Allison asks, throughout your faith journey, Ken, or during your research, writing, and in interviews with people of different faiths, have you ever doubted your own faith? Hmm. Yes. Um, uh, I remember uh, in 2003, I um, came home from work. It was a Wednesday. Uh, I remember it was November 19th, and I felt, uh, I felt sick. I felt ill. Mm -hmm. um, and I went to bed, and um, uh, my wife said I, I, I didn't wake up for like two days. Um, after a while, she noticed that I was really sick, and she took me to the emergency room. And I remember the doctor telling me, you know, I, I thought, just give me some something for the flu, and I'll be on my way. But he did an examination, and he said, you are seriously ill. And uh, at the time, they thought I might have brain cancer. And uh, 
fortunately for me, even though it was a real battle, I had a, a rare bacterial infection that had invaded my right lung and gone to my brain. So I had six abscess brain lesions. I later discovered that the mortality rate for somebody with that is 80%. But I remember being in the hospital for uh, about a month. And uh, one night late when my wife went home uh, and I I was all alone, I I couldn't sleep. I had a lot of uh, pain, but I also had, you know, medications flowing through my system and my brain wasn't working as as well as I wish it were. And I, I wondered, uh, I said, do I really believe all this? You know, I, I thought, remember the doctor telling me, you need to get your house in order. You know, you, you may be facing the end of your life. And I thought, do I really believe all this? I've been talking about Christianity for decades. I have been teaching but do I believe it? And I, I remember thinking, you know, what if uh, what if I die and and uh, the light goes out? Naturalism, atheism, no God. Or then I thought, boy, you know, what if what if Allah's staring me in the face uh, and I've picked the wrong God? And you know, it was it was challenging. But slowly and gradually, once my my mind started to come back to me. I started thinking about my basic apologetic ideas, why I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, why I believe he is the Son of God, why I think Christianity is unique and, and true in a way that the other faiths were not. But that was a very difficult time for me, Krista. And, uh, you know, when you're sick, you're just not on your, you're not as sharp, you're not on your game. Uh, but I have also discovered that I think doubts are part of anybody's life who is an intellectual person. If you, if you think and you reflect, you're going to experience doubt. Uh, I, I've also discovered sometimes doubt has to do with intellectual issues, but sometimes it's emotional or psychological. And uh, so I, I did go through a very challenging period. And um, but the Lord was faithful to me. I uh, had many, many, many friends pray for me. In fact, one of my doctors, after looking at my big folder, he looked through it and he looked at me and he said, uh, somebody must have been watching out for you because you shouldn't be here right now. And I thought, wow, um, you know, the Lord took me through that, that journey of, of illness, of doubt, uh, and yet he, he had his hand on me. And uh, those are things I like to share with people who go through difficult times. Yeah. I'm so glad you shared that story because 2003 was also the year I almost died. And I remember you and I were kind of fighting for our lives nearly at the same time. Right. Um, I had a hor- I got a horrible staph infection right after I ha- gave birth to our second daughter. And I remember having a very similar experience in the basement at Whittier Presbyterian Hospital of thinking like, is Christianity really true? Yeah. You know, they, they had me say goodbye to my five-day five wow. old baby. Wow. And I was like, is, is this really how this is going to end? I have a three-year-old and a five-day-old child, and, and I'm not going to see them graduate from high school. I'm not going to see them get married. I mean... And my, my husband's going to be a single parent. Like, is this how this goes, Lord? And I remember, like, 
think having those same thoughts of, you know, about, I, I remember thinking there on that gurney at two in the morning in the basement of the hospital, like now is probably not the time to work through the problem of evil. <laughs> you know, like I should probably have that already all solidified. But even then, you know, as a theologian and a, as a young oh. apologist, I, you know, it, you you have those moments of, you know, what is happening here? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, God was gracious to both of us. I remember when Hugh, uh, Hugh Ross pulled me in, in his office and told me you were going to die. Yeah. And he, he gave me assignments of things that you were supposed to be doing. And I had to explain to him, I'm not that kind of theologian. <laughs> yeah. It, Ken well, and I have different expertise. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. remember I remember you being sick. Yep. I remember oh. that scenario. Boy. Yeah, that was horrible. Yep. So um now really quick, I wanna encourage people to jump on the chat. If you have questions for Ken, you can do that. We'll be here for about 15, 20 more minutes. Now, just really quick, I know that you're a big Lakers fan, Dodgers fan, Beatles fan. So I have to know um favorite Dodger player. Wow, that's a that's a really good question. Um, I, well, growing up, Steve Garvey was my favorite hitter. Uh, number six played first base. First base, yeah. Yep. Um, and I, I was just watching him the other day. Ba- baseball, I love baseball. It, it teaches you a lot about life. I mean, you go through slumps, you make errors, and everybody watches. And I, I love baseball. I love the history of baseball. Yeah, me too. I love that. Um, okay, favorite Laker? Uh, it's got to be Jerry West. Uh, he was uh, the first, uh, my first favorite Laker player, and I have, uh, I've, I've, I've never, never viewed anybody else as being quite like Jerry West. And when my parents didn't like basketball, when they discovered Jerry West from was, was from West Virginia, they were sold. So, yeah, Jerry West. And when you you grow up in L.A., you know, there's a wide difference uh, between Ken and my ages. But we both, I'm sure, were listening to Vin Scully and Chick Hearn on the radio and on the television growing up, calling the Dodger games, calling the Laker games. Uh, That's just was an L.A. staple for decades. Okay, Favorite Beatles song. Wow. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to say Eleanor Rigby. I I love that song. Bob's nodding his head on that one. Good selection. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, that's, that's, there are a lot of them. Hey Jude, um, Day in the Life, but I'm going to go with Eleanor Rigby. <laughs> Very good. So, all right. Now you have worked at Reasons to Believe for 25 years now. I worked there for 23 and a half years, long time. Um, I, I know how I would answer this question, but I don't know if this is something you and I have ever talked about is what are some of the theological lessons that you've learned from working with scientists? Like questions that you didn't necessarily learn in seminary, but you really had to think through and dig into because scientists just ask different kind of questions than we are trained to ask as theologians. They really do, and I, I, I'm afraid at times that scientists and philosophers or scientists and theologians, because they're trained differently, they kind of talk past one another. But I, I think that 
particularly in my discussion with Hugh Ross, but also Jeff Swearing and Dave Rogstad, two, uh, two other really remarkable scientific thinkers, I think the whole idea of Big Bang cosmology has become something that I'm deeply interested in, kind of always trying to connect it to creation ex nihilo, the, the, the biblical view, the historic Christian view that only the triune God existed and then called all other non-contingent contingent realities into existence from nothing. That has been a big issue. I, I think as uh, I, I think as well, just uh, just looking at uh, human exceptionalism and mm-hmm. how how human exceptionalism can relate to the image of God, the Imago Dei, and discussions that I've had with uh, Dr. Fuzrana about that. So, um, you know, the funny thing is, I always I always uh, say that when I go to lunch with Dave and Jeff and Hugh, I feel like I understand physics. And then I'll go home and my son will ask me a question and I say, I don't know, you know, <laughs> but they being around them has it, it, it's been a great uh, a great source of, of learning. And and uh, I, I have a great deal of respect for the, the men and women I've worked with at Reasons yeah. to Believe. Yeah, I think for me, just right along those same lines of uh, the hu- the origin of humans for me was there's so many questions that are connected to the first humans that, you know, you, you might get like a little superficial thing in seminary about anthropology, basic anthropology and Adam and Eve. But it, it, it when you when you start moving into the scientific realm, there's just a whole host of questions that for me as a theologian, I'm like, whoa, I've, I've never thought about this. I'm going to really have to, it really sent me back to the scriptures to restudy a lot of things because they just ask different questions. And so it, it, I know for me, I always felt like it was its own process and journey, almost like a second master's degree that I got just by being with them and all the extra reading and everything I had to do. I always thought you picked it up really well. I mean, I remember early on when you would uh, host some of our early ventures on a radio program or a podcast. Uh, I thought, I thought you did really, really well. I mean, the, when you would write a theological piece that had related to science, I always thought, Boy, you've got really good insight. So well, I learned from you. <laughs> well, you—that's you, for sure. You took to it well. So, looking back over your career, working with Walter Martin, teaching in a lot of community colleges um, here in Southern California, working at Reasons to Believe, interacting with a lot of different kinds of people. I'm wondering, how have you seen the field of defending the faith? shift over the decades? Like, what were the big questions people were asking 30 years ago versus the questions that you think that they're asking today? Yeah, that very much relates uh, to the book that I've recently written. You know, I remember going to the colleges and universities when I was working at CRI. So this is the late 80s, 87 uh, I, I think I left there in 93. But when I would go to the colleges in those days, Krista, I would get 
really truth questions. Uh, does God exist? Is Jesus the Son of God? How do I know he's risen from the dead? What about uh, Christianity and its interface with these other world religions, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism? Uh, so that, that, those were the kinds of questions I got then, and uh, I appreciated those questions. But my time at RTB, I think about 15 years ago, I noticed when I would go to the university with Hugh or with Fuzz or some of my RTB colleagues, I noticed that I was starting to get different types of questions. Uh, I still got truth questions, but they were starting to ask me more and more about whether, not whether Christianity was true, but whether Christianity was good. Uh, I got questions about slavery, I got questions about whether Christianity has been good for women and racial minorities. People raise questions about Yahweh in the Old Testament. I mean, what about this Canaanites, Joshua conquest against the Canaanites? And I thought, you know, I, I really think that I have lived through a period where I've gone from kind of modernism with the truth questions really to much more a postmodernism. Mm -hmm where there is suspicion about uh, questions of morality and truth. And, and that really kind of led me to work on a, a new apologetic book where I, I looked at both truth questions, but also questions about uh, the goodness of Christianity. And I know that has been something with you. Yeah, Christianity cross-examined. Uh, the subtitle, is it rational, relevant, and good? And so... I think today, Krista, it's not enough to merely address the truth question. I think we are forced uh, to answer questions about the relevance of Christianity and whether Christianity has been good. Uh, so issues of race, gender, and class are not going to go away. I think you do a marvelous job of addressing those topics. And so I think we have seen... Um, again, a, a transition from modernism to postmodernism. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say it that way because that was exactly what Nancy Piercy said on the stream a couple of nights ago is that she's noticed that shift too. And um, so I don't think that we're alone in that. I think that as people are asking questions about not just moral relativism, which is kind of very 1990s sort of early postmodernism, yeah. but now we're in an era of like constructing gender, constructing race. You know, this is just a very different world that we're, we're yeah. living in now and people are asking different questions. And one of the things that I'm asking is, are we doing a good job of educating our upcoming apologists mm -hmm. in their programs? I, I sometimes wonder whether we're still educating our apologists in to answer questions related to modernism, yeah. but our, our maybe our seminary education, our apologetics training programs haven't quite caught up with how to educate people on these more postmodern um, critical social theory yeah. types of questions. I'm wondering if, what, if you've thought about that at all. I have, and I, I, you know, again, working here at Reasons to Believe, um, we have these, you know, traditional kind of science faith questions, but now people are raising the question, you know, 
maybe maybe our model of teaching mathematics is racist. Right. Um, you know, uh, the classical uh, degree at Princeton, they, they dropped the requirement of uh, studies in um, Greek and Latin. Uh, I see a movement of suspicion and skepticism that's moving beyond the liberal arts and humanities and philosophy, uh, even into the area of the STEM disciplines. Yeah. I'm not sure that we're doing a good enough job, but I, I really support what you're doing. And I hated to see you leave reasons to believe, but I think you are, you're the perfect person to enter into that field and, and really kind of help a lot of us catch up. Well, that's very kind. And I, I just really see it as a, as a need, especially from the kinds of letters that we were getting from parents about children declaring they're atheists, you know, when they're eight and 10 years old or questioning their gender when they're 10 and 12 years old. And parents need to have different kinds of answers yeah. now. Um, it, it's just and everything's just changing so fast. Um now, we've got a couple of questions uh, on the stream, so we're going to go out to those. Um, Nikki is asking, what advice do you have for others who have words in their head but struggle to get those words on paper or in the computer, especially if they know uh, they know fear might be holding them back? Do you ever struggle with fear when you write that maybe something you write might not be well-received or popular? How do you get over some of those writing struggles and blockages? Well, I would uh, I would say that writing is is not easy. It's challenging. It it for me it never comes out exactly right the first time. Uh, you know, there are times where you wonder have I have I studied enough about this? Have I looked at enough perspectives? Um, but I can tell you this, Krista, that uh, one of the great joys is when you're able to write something and it really is helpful to people. It it challenges them or it encourages them or it it moves them it, it toward Christ. So I want to encourage people. Um, you know, writing is not easy. It's tough, but if you work at it, if you're doing your studies, uh, if you are faithful, the Lord will be faithful to you. And uh, yeah, I remember when I was first writing a book and I thought, boy, I, is this really going to come together? How is it going to work out? Um, but if you feel a calling and you are being responsible, uh, I think you need to trust the Lord. He will, he'll take you along. Yeah, I think Nikki, um, my advice would be to start small. Like, don't maybe start with a book, start with a blog, start with a thousand word blog posts. Um, writing is, is something that sometimes you can get better at. Sometimes people are just born good writers. I'm not that, but I've improved over the years. And one thing that helped me improve was reading hard books. And as I interacted with higher level content, my writing improved. So um, another thing that can be really helpful is writing something and then having a lay person read it and give you feedback. Now, that, that feedback can be hard. <laughs> it can be very hard, um, but you can learn from it. So I would say start, start small, start with a blog. Ken has been so faithful about blogging for so many years. And if you don't yet follow his blog, please go 
follow it as reflections by Ken, but there's, I don't know that that would be kind of my advice to start small and get some feedback. And, and um, the Lord says that when we're faithful in little things, he'll make us rulers over much. So we have to just start somewhere. So. All right, let's do another question here. This was on YouTube. Uh, Your top three books to read other than the Bible as a Christian. That's a great question. I, uh, you know, many years ago when I was about 20 years old, I decided that I was going to try to read three hours a day. So I would get up at five in the morning, read till 8 a.m. and then go off to school or go to church and then off to school. Um, I have three, I call them the big three. My, my three favorite thinkers outside of the New Testament, outside of the biblical authors are Augustine, Pascal, and C.S. Lewis, um, you have to read the Confessions. It is a remarkable work. It, it is, I think, I think it's the most amazing Christian book ever. So Confessions by St. Augustine. And I you reread also, that book almost like every year. I read it every year. Yeah. I, I, I just think it's an amazing, amazing work and readable. I mean, a lot of times when I read it, I think he's talking about me. It's, it is a book that really kind of draws you in. Another book would be Blaise Pascal, his Pensées, which in French is Thoughts or Reflections, just kind of his notes and his reflections about things, a remarkable work. And then uh, Mere Christianity, the book my sister gave me, it remains my favorite C.S. Lewis book and uh those three thinkers have, have had such a big influence on me. And I'm, I am so thankful for the many Christian thinkers, both in our time and in previous centuries, that have, that have been faithful to God, been faithful in their studies, and have left works that have really helped us today. Definitely. I'm wondering, um, as we kind of close things out here, what do you think are what are two of the most common mistakes that you see young Christian apologists make in the beginning when they're kind of first discovering how to defend the faith? They're starting to read, read some books about it, listen to some podcasts. Um, I know that when I first started down that path, I was young and enthusiastic and I'm, I'm wondering looking back or as you observe young apologists or just starting in that endeavor, what are some of the, the potential pitfalls that you would love to sit down for with, with them over coffee and say, please don't do this or learn, learn from my mistakes. Yeah. I, I I really do appreciate you asking that question. I think it's such an important one. Uh, You know, in having taught for the last 30 years uh, at various community colleges and also at Biola university, Krista, I think it's very easy and very common for an apologist who is, is a, he or she is a cerebral individual. Uh, they love reasoning. They love polemics. They love arguments. It's easy to allow their intellectual abilities to move well beyond their, their spiritual convictions and their devotion to Christ. I, I really think that um, you're becoming a gracious, winsome, humble person is not an option. 
Uh, and if you delay that, you're going to bump your head along the way. Um, so it's, it's very easy for your intellectual abilities to move beyond your devotion to prayer. Uh, you know, I, I want to be a, I want to be a warm and winsome Christian apologist. I want people to know that I love my wife and my family. I'm devoted to them. I, I want people to know that uh, I care about truth, but I also care about unity and I care about charity. So don't allow your intellectual abilities to move beyond your spiritual formation and your devotion uh, to the triune God. I, I think the other thing that pops in my mind, Krista, is uh, we have some really fine Christian apologists today. There, there are many of them. Hugh Ross is certainly one of them here at Reasons to Believe. Uh, my friend J.P. Moreland at Biola. Uh, Dr. William Lane Craig is an amazing Christian thinker. But I wouldn't merely study people who are living today. I think developing an understanding of church history, looking at some of the great thinkers of the past. Uh, the reason I wrote my little book, uh, Classic Christian Thinkers, is I wanted to introduce a lot of Christians today to some of the great thinkers of the past. Uh, great Catholic thinkers, great Orthodox thinkers, great Protestant thinkers. I remember at Biola, first day of class, I said, who is your favorite apologist? And... Uh, you know, they said again, uh, Moreland and Craig and Hugh Ross. And I said, what about some older ones? Let's go back. And they said, oh, uh, how about C.S. Lewis? I said, well, I like him. But what about, what about Augustine? What about Anselm? What about Aquinas? What about Athanasius? I would really encourage Christians today to go deep into church history. I think you will discover that... Uh, you don't have to be a Catholic to appreciate Augustine and Aquinas. You don't have to be Eastern Orthodox to appreciate uh, Athanasius and Chrysostom. I have, uh, I have discovered that church history uh, is, is a remarkable resource for me. So those would be two things that I would encourage and challenge people who are working through theology and philosophy and apologetics to give consideration to. Boy, that's such great advice. Thank you so much, Ken, for hanging out with us tonight and just sharing a bit of your life and, and the legacy of what you've done. You're so prolific. It's such a rare combination that you embody because you absolutely embody what you just recommended. You read widely and your Christian character really shines through in what you do and what you write. Thank you so much for all that you've invested in me and all of your encouragement all of these years. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Krista. Working with you was uh, really uh, a joy to me. And you and your husband, Bob, have been such good friends. And I, I really believe in support in the work you're doing. So I want to encourage people to get on there and interact with you and learn from you. So thank you so much. You've been you've been great. Thank you. Good night and God bless. Bye-bye. Bye. What fun, you guys. Thank you so much for being here tonight. I'm going to put a bookmark in it right now, right there. I hope you'll share this stream with someone that you think it will encourage them. Join me next Monday for part four of my series on justice. 
will be the fourth and final installment of that series. We're going to talk about the relationship between the gospel and justice and how those two are both necessary if we are going to transform and influence our culture. And we're also going to talk about some practical ways that I think that Christians can advocate for justice in the public square. Um, so I want to encourage you to come back next week as we wrap up that teaching series. And thank you to each and every one of you who are uh, monthly partners. If you've come on to help support me in this ministry, I just want to say thank you very much. And if you would like to support the ministry and support what I'm doing, you can just go to the center for biblical unity.com slash donate. And you can select uh, my salary there. I know that many of you watching the stream right now are already monthly supporters. And I just want to thank you because you're, because of your support, it makes content like this possible that we can help uh, sow into the faith of others. Thank you so much. Share the show and good night and God bless. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.